2: This week, a complex eye inside a single cell. This sort of um, challenges a lot of our
1: conceptions about uh, what you need to evolve complexity.
3: And Australian lizards flip sex when the heat rises.
4: This is a kind of a really interesting and exciting result because basically it means the best the best females are actually male. Plus,
2: teaching robots to be ethical. This is the Nature podcast for July the second, twenty fifteen. I'm Adam Levy,
3: and I'm Kerry Smith. Our eyes are made up of several specialised parts, including a cornea, a retina, a lens, which all come together to make a complicated structure. You might think you'd need millions of cells to achieve such complexity, but in one group of plankton called dinoflagellates, there are some species with complex eyes in a single cell. These minuscule structures are called oscilloids, but what they're made of has until now been a bit of a mystery. Most cells contain component structures called organelles, such as mitochondria, which provide power to the cell. Researchers thought that some of these structures may have been repurposed to form the eye-like ocelloid. Now a team at the University of British Columbia in Canada have worked out which bits are doing what. Noah Baker spoke with Greg Gavellis, the PhD student who led the research, and he first asked why ocelloids are interesting to scientists. This is the first uh, structure that is completely subcellular and is
1: an eye. There are things called eye spots, which are essentially just a little, uh, a little freckle of pigment, uh, but it was thought that you actually needed a multicellular organization in order to evolve a structure like that. So this sort of um, challenges a lot of our conceptions about uh, what you need to evolve complexity.
5: How long have we known about these oscilloids and why haven't we understood more about them up until now? So, the oceloid was discovered in
1: 1884 by a young researcher, and his name was Oscar Hertwig. And he saw swimming among these single cells a single cell with an eye. And uh, that turned out to be the first Warnoid dinoflagellate. But at the time, there was a lot of doubt as to whether his description was accurate because no one else was able to find. Uh, any of these cells in the plankton. And in fact, that researcher, Oscar Hertwig never found those cells again. They are so rare that some species you'll be lucky if you find five cells in one year.
5: You say it's got a sort of a cornea and a retina, you know, just what we'd think of in our eyes. How does it do that if it doesn't have different cells making different structures? So there's
1: only so many organelles in a eukaryotic cell. Uh, There's a nucleus, there's mitochondria, there's an endomembrane system and uh, it turned out that our particular organism has uh, chloroplasts uh, which are usually used for photosynthesis and it's modified a chloroplast into this pigmented retina like structure. And then on the uh, other side, on the uh, cornea, that turned out to be made of mitochondria. So we have not one but at least two different, very different organeller systems that are contributing to this eye-like structure.
5: So your one structure that you'd seen before was actually a bit of a mishmash of other structures.
1: Yeah, it's what we would call uh, a chimera.
5: I think many people, if they're thinking about this, they they might think of mitochondria, which are the sort of power production plants of a cell, and then chloroplasts, which are sort of like solar panels for a cell. They're not two things you'd imagine that would come together to make an eye. Was that a surprise to you? A
1: single cell is really limited in the ingredients it can use to make an eye. Uh, So I think it basically used the chloroplast because it was pigmented and could screen light such that it was only catching light from one direction, which is a very important feature for an eye. Uh, The mitochondria, on the other hand, evolved seemingly to delimit the other side of the eye by forming this layer that perhaps holds the lens in place. It's not clear what the mitochondria really are doing in this relationship.
5: This eye is very reminiscent of the kind of structure that we have in our eyes. Are they related at all? Right. So
1: that was the suspicion of a very prominent molecular biologist named Walter Goering. And he supposed that there might have been gene transfer from dinoflagellates to animals, that allowed for the animal eyes to evolve. Uh, but dinoflagellates evolved far after eyes evolved in animals such as vertebrates and um, mollusks and jellyfish. So that hypothesis uh, doesn't really make sense in the in terms of the fossil record.
5: You found an eye made up of other organelles that were in the cell before. What's next? Will there be a nose?
1: Um, No, but there are guns. That's something that I wouldn't really tell the NRA about, but there are these very complex uh, organelles that can launch uh, ballistic structures. And our current project is doing some 3D modelling of these structures and also identifying what they're made of.
3: That was Greg Gavellis talking to Noah Baker. Wow, I would not have expected single-celled organisms to be able to make an eye, let alone a gun. The paper is at nature.com slash nature. And to find out more of the amazing things that plankton get up to, head over to the Nature YouTube channel at youtube.com slash nature video channel and check out five reasons to thank plankton.
2: Many animals, including us, are being shaken up by climate warming. Maybe they're losing habitat or their food supply is changing. But some reactions are pretty unexpected. A paper in this week's Nature investigates a curious case of a lizard that switches its sex in the heat. Here's Marion Turner with more.
0: The central bearded dragon is a gorgeous little lizard found in the Australian outback. It has spiky scales, orange eyes and a fantastic throat that it puffs out to scare off predators. But for the scientists who study it, it has one even more colourful feature – the way it determines whether its babies are male or female. Most species have sex chromosomes. Others let temperature dictate the sex of offspring. But the bearded dragon does both. I spoke with Claire Hollily from the University of Canberra, who's been studying these lizards in the wild. First, she explained how there's quite a bit more to sex determination than just chromosomes.
4: Yeah, so so mammals do it using sex chromosomes, and that's obviously what we're we're kind of most familiar with being humans, and that's the way we do it. But there are lots of other animals, um, a lot of reptiles, for example, that actually use temperature to determine um, whether or not you're a boy or a girl. People are kind of familiar, um, you know, often with turtles, for example, are a really good example of that, so... Um, the temperature that the eggs um, are at in the nest will determine whether or not you're you're male or female.
0: You've been studying a, a very attractive Australian lizard that we've got on our cover this week. Why did you choose to study this particular lizard species?
4: So the, the central bearded dragon is a, a fantastic model. He's um, definitely one of our, our favourite creatures. Uh, and that's primarily because um, what they do with their sex determination, it's really fascinating and really complex because um, they're kind of sitting in between what we do as, as humans using sex chromosomes and what um, the turtles might be doing with temperature. And they actually do a bit of both.
0: So you already knew about these lizards from the lab in this study, you wanted to go out and check what they were doing in the wild. Your team went out into the outback and you looked for these lizards over an area about the size of France. How did you find them?
4: Well, they're actually quite cooperative, so they like to display. So um, really the best way of sampling these lizards is you drive down roads, um, you know, on a warm, sunny day, and they sit on fence posts and you can then, um, then easily capture them. So they're actually quite, um, quite agreeable to, to finding them.
0: Brilliant. And so once you captured them,
4: what did you look for in these lizards? Um, so really what we did is we, once we captured them, the first thing we wanted to do is find out whether or not they were uh, chromosomal males or chromosomal females and whether or not that was the same as as what they were actually physically doing. So so one of the major findings in this paper is the first time that we've actually identified sex-reversed animals in the wild. So what that actually means is that basically there are females that we captured that have the sex chromosomes of boys. So they're actually he, she's.
0: So they're anatomically female. Do they have female genitalia?
4: So they're anatomically female. They look, act and reproduce just like a normal female, but their sex chromosomes are male.
0: And then you, I think you translated that into some laboratory studies as well. Is that right?
4: Yeah, so we took them back to the lab and we wanted to find out what happens um, when these heishi these animals, these sex-reversed animals, reproduce. Um, so what we did is we took them into the lab and we mated them with regular males and then we wanted to see what happened to their offspring at different temperatures. And so what we showed in the paper is that if you have these heishi animals, they reproduce, lay eggs. If you incubate their eggs at low temperatures, then they all come out male. And if you incubate them at high temperatures, then all of the offspring will be female. Is there
0: some sort of evolutionary advantage to to this switch?
4: So again, that's a really big question. And we've got some preliminary data to suggest that that might actually be the case. So the sex reversed females, um, when we were mating them in the lab, actually produced more eggs, uh, almost twice as many eggs as normal um, non-reversed females. So this is kind of a really interesting and exciting result because basically it means the best, the best females are actually male.
0: That's um, spinning my head out. It's very bizarre, yeah. <laughs> um, so basically what you're saying is once there's been a, an event of sex reversal, then the chromosomes don't matter anymore. It's the temperature that the eggs are being incubated at after that.
4: Yeah, so it really looks like that's the case. And so so you kind of have to sort of put this in the context with what's happening with our environment at the moment. So like, if we get more frequent, really, you know, high extreme temperature summers, which could well, you know, be something happening in the future, then you're going to get this situation where you are triggering a transition in the wild uh, more frequently. So basically extreme weather events could be triggering fundamental changes in both the biology and the genome um, of these organisms in the wild as a response to a change in, change in the climate.
0: With climate change, you could end up with a lizard population where there just aren't any males around.
4: So absolutely, this is, this is one of the big concerns is that, yeah, as temperatures, if you know, we get an increase in the frequency of really high temperature events, the population's going to become more and more female-biased um, and basically there's kind of this mechanism that's going to push them towards a, a more and more female-biased population and it could well impact on their um, their survivorship as a species. That was Claire
2: Hollerley speaking with Marion Turner.
4: Coming up in just a moment how to teach robots to behave
3: ethically. But first it's time for the research highlights with Noah Baker.
5: Air pollution is bad news when it's causing asthma attacks and global warming – But it could be responsible for catastrophic flooding, too. In 2013, a storm caused devastating floods in the Sichuan Basin in China. Researchers modelled the atmosphere during the storm and showed that there could have been up to 60% less rain had it not been for all the aerosol particles trapped in the basin. These pollutants warmed the air and reduced air movement, leading to more moisture and rain. The article, in Geophysical Research Letters, suggested that reducing air pollution in the region could help with future floods. In Star Wars A New Hope, Luke Skywalker watches the twin suns set over his home planet of Tatooine. Astronomers only know of one real version of a planet like this orbiting a pair of stars. They thought it would be very unusual for a small rocky planet to form around binary stars because the gravity between the stars would make everything smash into each other but a new simulation shows there could be a stable zone where Earth-sized planets could safely form. Which means that there are probably more Tatooines waiting to be discovered. Read more in the Astrophysical Journal.
2: And if your preference is for our own solar system, I bet you're excited about the New Horizons mission, which arrives at its destination, Pluto, very soon. Check out our video about Pluto's lasting appeal on the Nature YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash nature video channel.
3: Now, robots are great for well-defined tasks, like putting car bits together on a production line. But what if, in doing these tasks, they butt up against squishier problems? There's a feature this week about the need to teach robots about morality, and Jeff Marsh has been wrestling with that dilemma.
6: Siri, quick, I need your help. There's a runaway railway trolley about to kill five innocent people on the track, but there's a lever here that would divert the train, saving their lives but killing one innocent bystander. Or I could just push this guy. Hey, what should I do?
3: I'm not sure I understand.
6: Now, don't worry, no one actually just died. But the point still stands that computers find it difficult to negotiate complex questions like that famous ethical thought experiment, the trolley problem. But as the field of robotics hurtles forward and machines are beginning to operate autonomously, scientists and ethicists are keen to install them with a set of principles to work by. But when questions of ethics are capable of splitting even human opinions, robustly defining rules and algorithms is no easy task. Here to discuss these tricky problems is nature reporter Boa Zheng on the line from Washington DC. Boa, Siri was absolutely useless then. What would you have done?
7: Well, so this is where things get a little tricky. What if the five people were all criminals and the one person on the diverted track was a really important person? And this kind of tends to change people's answers. But but I think I would be willing to pull the lever but not push the person, regardless of who the person I'm pushing is.
6: You and the majority of our species.
7: Yes, I I, I believe that is the case. <laughs>
6: We're already asking machines to act with some degree of autonomy and we'll certainly be asking them to do so more in the future. And some of these decisions then have bearings on human well-being and therefore they're ethical decisions.
7: Yes, exactly. And beyond that, not just keeping people safe but also they'll be required to sort of confer trust and fit into social norms of what what we think would be acceptable for a person to do, and, and, and that makes it fall into the realm of ethics.
6: Okay, so let's just pick one example then. Uh, an obvious one is autonomous cars, right? So what what kind of ethical quandary can you imagine one of these machines getting itself into?
7: I was at a panel discussion quite recently where Daimler, the German automaker, was talking about a fleet of autonomous trucks that it has recently been able to deploy in Nevada. The idea is that they would be able to, for example, brake much faster than a person would be able to. But then the question is, what if braking causes the car behind you to hit you or or raises that risk? Is it more important to save the driver that's in the car, or is it more important to avoid the risk of accident.
6: It's as if there are two separate issues here. One is how do you turn the the fluffy decision making that we do as humans into robust kind of computer code? And the second question is that ethics it's it's not it's not finished, is it? We're not all decided on what is the right thing to do. Right,
7: exactly. For the fields where we do have some rules, for example, the laws of engagement in battle or ethical rules for the biomedical field where there's sort of standards that you follow. The challenge there is to write codes that will encode those laws and then have robots be able to resolve them based on instructions that are given to them. Another view though is that in order to have robots that you know can go beyond resolving and following a specific set of rules, is to teach them um, using a process called machine learning. By following previous patterns, the robot will learn sort of what's important and and what's unimportant and kind of make new rules when it encounters new situations. To a lot of people, that's quite scary (laughs) because you don't know where the robot is going to be getting those rules from and how to sort of look into the machine code to, to work that out.
6: We were talking about the trolley problem and most people will opt not to push the person because that's them causing direct harm. Now, is that, I don't know if weakness is the right word, but is that a a weakness of uh, being human and feeling guilt and feeling compassion? And is that therefore something that a robot might be freed of?
7: So that's a great question that I think people don't have a good answer to because some people argue that you need to have guilt and compassion in order to be ethical. And other people argue that in other situations, guilt and emotions sort of cloud your ability to operate perfectly under sort of ethical rules.
6: When do you think we're going to see machines making these ethical decisions? Do you think we ever are going to see them doing it properly? And do you think they'll ever be better than us at it?
7: That kind of depends on what we decide as societies we want from, from robots. You know, there are initiatives in the Far East, for example, in Japan, there are a lot of uh, initiatives to sort of get robots into nursing homes and sort of a, a greater acceptance of robots as sort of companions to humans. Whereas, you know, if, if we are, are terrified <laughs> that, you know, robots are going to take over and be our future machine masters, then, you know, perhaps they, they'll never get to the point where we'll accept them and make them capable of, of, of making hugely autonomous decisions.
3: That was reporter Boa Deng on the line from Washington, D.C. Time now for our weekly
2: news chat, and Davide Castelvecchi joins me in the studio. Hi, Davide.
8: Hi, pleasure to be here.
2: This week there's been a couple of super stories. The first has been about super
8: pigs. What's going on with these? It's a very preliminary uh, piece of research at this point. It hasn't been published yet, but uh, it seems that um, researchers in Seoul, in South Korea, have created the analog of Belgian blue cattle, which is this super muscly kind of cow in a pig. So they made a super muscly pig, except that what took decades of breeding to create the, the muscly cow here took only a simple deletion of a gene doing uh, in, a, in a molecular biology lab.
2: Now, what's so special about this? We've done kind of genetic modification of animals before, haven't we? Is there something unique about what they've done here?
8: Yeah, so uh, in a way, it's it seems less threatening because it didn't involve inserting a gene that came from one organism into another. It, it was simply um, deleting one gene from one organism.
2: Is this something that You could, in theory, achieve with selective breeding, or could you only really do this with this kind of gene editing trick?
8: Yeah, no, in fact, you could do it, but it it would take much longer in principle.
2: I assume this development is for bacon lovers. It's to produce more meat and get more meat more efficiently from pigs. What are the consequences that they know of so far for the health and well-being of the pigs themselves?
8: It's still very early stages. It seems that there are health implications, potentially, because... Um, these were 32 cloned piglets that were born, and only about 13 of them made it past age eight months. So uh, th- this gene deletion has implications for the uh, animal's health, but on the other hand, they want to use the cloned pigs and then mix that with traditional breeding techniques to have a, a sa- like a safer, healthier pig.
2: So far, genetically engineered animals haven't been making their way to dinner plates at all, really. I know it's very early days and it's quite speculative, but do you think people are going to be eating these?
8: Certainly the fact that there are no foreign uh, organism genes that are used, that will probably help. Here they, what they, all they're doing is they're inhibiting a gene um, without adding anything uh, alien into the, the genome. So. It's possible that people will find it easier to swallow. <laughs> <laughs> now, just in case people are thinking
2: that this is a CRISPR story, they, they didn't actually use CRISPR for this.
8: They did not. So CRISPR is a technique that recognizes the sequence uh, of the gene to be deleted using RNA that, is, that has been engineered. And this is an older technique called TALEN that uses uh, DNA sequences rather than RNA sequences. But the researchers say that they also plan to uh, plan to try using CRISPR.
2: Okay, so we'll have to wait for a crispy bacon story then. Indeed. Okay, from super pigs now to superconductors, there's been a bit of a breakthrough um, in superconductor research.
8: Yes, again, this is uh, still at the very early stages. It's very pre- preliminary because it, it, this is also unpublished research at this stage um, that has been posted on this uh, archive uh, online repository that physicists use um, but apparently it's it's encouraging new uh, evidence for the first time last December uh, a group of the University of Mainz in Germany uh, reported that uh, the the um, smelly rotten egg gas uh, uh, hydrogen sulfide apparently when you cool it down and you and you compress it to something like a million atmospheres of pressure, the the gas becomes a superconductor. That means it conducts electricity without uh, wasting any energy. And that paper from December is still unpublished. At the time, experts said, well, you've shown that there's this drop in electrical resistance, but the real smoking gun of superconductivity is to show that a material cannot host any magnetic field. So in other words, when the material is superconducting, inside, there should be no magnetic field at all. And in this uh, new experiment, which we reported the other day, there, they have evidence that the, um, when the temperature goes below 203 kelvins, the, the material basically kicks out a uh, magnetic field. And 203 kelvins is a record. So if this holds up, if this is indeed uh, true superconductivity, it would be the highest temperature superconductor ever found.
2: So 203 Kelvin is about minus 70 degrees Celsius. That still seems pretty cold. What was the coldest record before this was investigated?
8: So the coldest record was done with, with cuprates, which are some kind of exotic ceramic material. And that was at 164 Kelvin. So we're talking about 40 degrees Warmer than before. It's still not room temperature. It's still not even above um, the the freezing temperature of, of water. But the hope is that um, the the same phenomena that are that we see here could also be at play in materials that would superconduct it at at room temperature, which could have revolutionary implications for technology. In
2: this research. The temperature is very warm, but the pressures are very high. Is there any hope that related materials could superconduct closer to atmospheric pressure?
8: Yes. Well, the, the hope is to be applicable to for technology. There would have to be a way to find this phenomenon to apply to normal temperatures and pressures.
2: Both these really exciting things, which look like they could be taking a big step, but it still feels that there are quite a few big obstacles for both of them to get over.
8: And that's the nature of research. Whenever there is a big claim or or, uh, supposedly big breakthrough, there's always a long path towards turning it into actual products that we can use.
2: Davide, thanks a lot for joining us. More, as always, at nature.com forward slash news.
3: That's all for this week. Before we go, did you realise that this week there was a leap second? That's right, one extra second to keep atomic clocks in line with the Earth's rotation, which is gradually slowing. It was added just before midnight London time on Tuesday. And if you missed it, here it is again.
2: Ah, what a great moment. Pleased to be able to spend it with you listeners. Tune in next time. I'm Adam Levy.
3: And I'm Kerry Smith. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.